This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. The show came along and went online the way it always used to. Listeners hadn't heard it for over a year. Nobody had. Back then, it was always a hazy narrator introduction, followed by the host's own rambling hello before talking to a guest about this movie they both couldn't stop thinking about. Tonight, the show was making a surprise reappearance, a little older than listeners remembered, featuring a guest the show figured it'd never feature. Ladies and gents, hippies and hitmen, sax players and government snitches, feds and flatlanders alike, welcome to Increment Vice, the podcast that explored Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice one scene at a time. With me, your host, Travis Woods. And if you're a longtime listener, you know that that's exactly what we did. Losing ourselves and finding ourselves together in the fog of this film with a coterie of filmmakers and crime novelists, film critics and writers as guests, each of us sharing what both an individual scene and the overall film of Inherent Vice meant to us. And the magic of being able to see such a Rorschach of a film through another person's eyes. And if you're a first-time listener who's only heard of this show because of today's guest, well, hey, that's what we did. And if that sounds like your thing, you can look back over my shoulder and you'll see a year-long podcast of 45 episodes with guests like Brick and Knives Out director Ryan Johnson, preeminent crime author Megan Abbott, Nightmare Alley screenwriter Kim Morgan, and many, many, many fucking more. It was a weird and weirdly personal podcast that was studded and jeweled with my obsessions and those of my guests, all filtered through this pot-fogged prism of inherent vice, a show that began two years ago, and a show that ended one year ago. And now here we are. So let me just start this off by saying, this don't mean we're back together. <laughs> but just like a wayward detective sometimes finds his ex-old drifting out of the seafoam haze of Gordita Beach along the alley and up the back steps the way she always used to, well, here I found myself with an offer that was hard to turn down. And if I may... Mix my movie references the way I mix my metaphors. There I was, sitting on a piece of driftwood with my dog, when an old partner came to run a game on me, Manhunter style, and pull me back on the case. And that man, behind such podcasts as One Heat Minute and The Last 20 Minutes of the Mohicans, both of which, by the way, climax with Michael Mann guest spots, that man who spontaneously generates podcasts almost daily. <laughs> he pulled me back. And here he is, handsome Blake Howard, who came to me with an opportunity to meet the man who really made this show possible, 
my very own Crocker Fenway, Paul Thomas Anderson. Hey, Blake. Trev. You miss, miss those intros, don't you? I miss them so much. I you miss that here, hyperbole. I miss the hyperbole. I'd sit here in my office. The lights would go off. A rum would be poured. Nice and icy. Sometimes I'd have a <laughs> slice of lime. Now, this is getting a little... Uh... I'm just a little romantic. I'm trying to get romantic with you. And then I have red lights in my office when I'm really in the editing mode. And that was inspired largely by increment vice. And then I would just be lured into these great conversations and, oh man, it was so fun. So hearing you do it and looking at your face while you're doing it, it is just a pleasure. <laughs> it is a pleasure. To be the old gunslinger that you've, uh, you've pulled back out into the game for, uh, <laughs> for one more heist, one more hit. Here I am. Yeah, I, except uh, I didn't. I didn't have our lovely cat call that say, you know, you better look after him or you better take care of him. I think that's the only thing that was missing from this uh, in the in the in the parlance of Manhunter uh, to, for for that to happen. But that's anyway. right. That's right. Well, you know, better luck next time. But I'm not saying there's a next time. No, this, this don't mean we're back together. Like what this is today. This is what we got here. We have a little bit of. This is an epilogue. Yeah. To increment vice. This is. Um, this is just a cherry on top, a little, a little Christmas gift, if you will. Mm -hmm. And, you know, let's, you know, enough intros. Let's, let's just get to it. But as with all things, increment vice, I say, let's just get to it. <laughs> I say that hear me and you are probably going to talk for about another 20 minutes, but maybe in, in true, this is a, as I always said, as I always said, this is a podcast about inherent vice. If it's it's going to be shaggy, so so bear with us for a moment. But before we dive in to our talk with the man who adapted, who wrote and directed the film Inherent Vice that we dedicated a fucking year of our lives to, <laughs> and finally spoke to about this, uh, I think we should offer a caveat or three. Mm. First off. We do discuss his new film, Liquor's Pizza. The spoilers are pretty minimal, and they're nothing that you wouldn't be able to glean off of a very careful viewing of the film's trailer. But still, they are there. So if that's the kind of thing that salts your asparagus, you might want to leave now and come back after you've seen this very wonderful, very warm, very enjoyable film. Second off, and this is, this is kind of a big one, we're going to have a little, little history lesson here on the show. When we did the original stretch of uh, Increment Vice episodes, the thinking or the hope was that we would get PTA for the finale. Just as uh, Blake, my, my, my eternal hotshot Blake, got Michael Mann for one heat minute in the last 20 minutes of the Mohicans. The man has a really, just a real knack for uh, punny, punny podcast names, doesn't he? <laughs> Like in increment vice is not mine. That's his name. He came up with that. That's how he sold me on this thing. It's a gift. It was my gift to you. It, it truly is. And you Bless know what? Your heart. You know what? I feel like I feel like Homer when he gave Marge the bowling ball, because <laughs> it actually was my gift, and everyone who's listening's gift. Oh, listen, God. Well, you know what? Fuck PTA. Let's just need you hang out. Like, <laughs> you're so sweet. You're, you're so sweet when you butter me up like this. 
but but as I okay, so as I was saying, uh, you know, there was some hope we'd get PTA for the finale of that original stretch of episodes, and there were some talks, and you know, things were looking kind of good, kind of interesting. And then Licorice Pizza got green lit once uh, COVID numbers had stabilized in California, and off PTA went to make his movie, and because of the timing, it became a moot issue. That was that, and I thought I was kind of thought I was cool with that being that. But when he became available again following the film's production, as he did, well, I was I was faced with something I hadn't really considered, and it, it's it's something you, you would have thought I would have considered, but I didn't. And that is, what the hell do I want to ask Paul Thomas Anderson about Inherent Vice? So much of this show became about what this film means to us, the viewers, the audience. But to ask him things as blatant as, well, is Sword of real? Or what's that sex scene all about? It just kind of seemed like, well, it's like the least interesting thing in the world to me. Like, like, let's say, let's say God exists. Do you really want God to tell you the meaning of life? point of existence because then what's the point of existing it's the journey it's the getting there that's the fun part and the painful part and the interesting part the ending's just that it's just the ending i i didn't want to get to the ending you know similarly i know what inherent vice means to me and i know what it means to you and i know what it means to our guests and i know what it continues to evolve to mean to me but if I find out what it means to PTA, its cinematic creator, well, that's kind of that. It stops growing. And I don't want that. In fact, that's the last thing I want. <laughs> so we had a bit of a dilemma once you waylaid me with the news that Paul Thomas Anderson was available and able to talk to the Increment Vice Boys. How the fuck do we talk about Inherent Vice with Paul Thomas Anderson. So, uh, you kind of just sent me off. You just sent me off to kind of figure out my approach. Uh, you gave me the I news. I surprised. You, I what you, I want to tell Dennis, everyone listening. You Dennis Farinaed me. I surprised. You Dennis Farinaed me. You did. Uh, this I did not see coming. I was ready to kind of slide off into a nice, cozy Christmas break, not have anything to worry about, and. Like I said, you Dennis farina me, and you pulled me back in. You ran a game on me, and you brought me back into the fold. So I, I started thinking of how, how we approached exploring the film in the original run of episodes was we took the uh, the Thomas Pinchonian approach, for, for, for lack of a better term, by alloying and garbling together as much pop culture, especially PTA's other films, as possible as a means to view this film through those works of art. For examples, and I'm going to shotgun a lot at you here. Uh, Ryan Johnson and I, we looked at the film via the original Cowboy Bebop animated series. Uh, Turner Classic Movies host Alicia Malone, she looked through the lens of Douglas Sirk's Magnificent Obsession. Uh, to better understand and hair of Iceland, Z. Romaine looked at it via the works of Joan Didion. Film critic Walter Chaw through the poetry of Longfellow, crime novelist and good buddy S.A. Cosby through Dante's Inferno, 
you must remember this host, Karina Longworth, via the classic Hollywood couples of old. Matt Zoller cites through the New Testament. Crime writer William Boyle used the films of Jonathan Demme. Uh, my good buddy Damon used Under the Silver Lake. And, and on and on and on it went. And then there was me, and I tried to use so much of PTA's own filmography as my way into the film. And again, if you're, if you're a first-timer and all that sounds interesting to you, well, we've got 45 episodes of looking at Inherent Vice just like that. But I realized that was the absolute wrong way for me to approach this film with PTA. And so with that in mind, of all things, of all things that came to me, I thought of David Lynch's third season of Twin Peaks <laughs> and that wild, strange, explanation-resistant final episode of that run. And I remember how that final, that 18th episode of that third season, how it unlocked for me. I remember thinking at that time, don't use episodes 1 through 17 to try and understand and unlock episode 18. Instead, use episode 18 as your prism to look through and understand and unlock all that came before it in episodes 1 through 17. And in doing so, that show took on a much more powerful and emotional meaning for me. But that is another podcast, and that does not mean I am going to do that <laughs> podcast, Blake. We are, this I does not mean we are back I together. I say anything this at all. This does not mean we are back together. But that's how, that's what opened up that series for me. And it gave me a way into our talk with PTA. And so, a final caveat. With this conversation that you're going to hear, we're not going to use PTA's other films to look at Inherent Vice. Rather, we're going to use Inherent Vice to look at the rest of his films, his entire filmography, with an emphasis on Vice and Phantom Thread and Licorice Pizza, which I do think form a thematic trilogy that highlights an evolution of his own POV within his work but yeah we're going to look at his entire body of work through inherent vice not the other way around did you say that sounds about right like sounds spot on to me <laughs> okay so with that let's see what we can see with our guest the writer and director of sydney boogie nights Magnolia, Punch Drunk Love, There Will Be Blood, The Master, Phantom Thread, Licorice Pizza, and a little sunshined and melancholy neo-noir called Inherent Vice. Ladies and gents, please welcome Paul Thomas Anderson. You know, one of these days, I don't know when, I'll revisit Inherent Vice. It's been a while, which is good. It's good to get distance, you know, between making something and, and revisiting it. And I, I do think about it from time to time. I, I think, like, I can't wait until that moment where I can see that <laughs> in a diff different lens, you know, with a bit of distance. It'd be exciting to do. 
Well, you know, Paul, I think about inherent vice once in once for, once in a while, <laughs> and I gotta tell you, you know, it's it's my opinion as as the guy that did forty five episodes on it. it. It holds up. I enjoy it. <laughs> you know, as my as my favorite movie ever. Yeah, I, I would say it holds up. It's pretty strong. You know, I had heard of that, and it made me dizzy even thinking about it. Making that film made me dizzy. I, I was, uh, oh my lord, that is so much work. I. <laughs> One of these days, I will, I will, I will venture to revisit. I was, I couldn't believe it. It really made me, it really made my heart warm. I thought, God, oh, that's a lot of work. It's great. It, it was a joy from start to finish. Oh my Forty-five God. episodes, and the best part about it was, it wasn't about solving the movie. It wasn't like, oh, we want to know, you know, is sort of leash real? Is 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 this really happening? Anything like that? It just. All of us, the hosts and the guests, we were like detectives just putting together what we found, like coming together and seeing the movie from different perspectives. You know, I, Ryan would come on and talk about the, the Neil Young scene in the rain and how what it meant to him, which is something completely different to us. And it was such a wonderful Rorschach of being able to see how people experience films and how different they can be based on their experiences. And that's it was just a real gift. And a, a, the film is a gift, just like Licorice Pizza. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience for us both. Really quickly, just want to say, to sort of paraphrase you, you know, we are enthusiasts and connoisseurs, and we have no idea how to adequately describe this remarkable potion of a film, Licorice Pizza. It's really stunning, and uh, we're just grateful to chat to you today. Thanks, man. Thank you. Appreciate that. Blake, bring in the hyperbole. <laughs> I mean... No, it's a, to, it's a beautiful, joyous film. It was the first new film I've seen in theaters this year. Uh, I've seen a bunch of old stuff at the New Beverly, but this was my first brand new film on the big screen, and it was just it was just pure joy. Did you get a chance to go down to the village to see it? Front row balcony. Oh, ho, ho, ho. the best seats <laughs> in the house. The best Fought for those terrific. seats, baby. Fought for those seats. Front row balcony. It was gorgeous. Felt like I had the whole screen to myself. Yeah. Absolutely. No, those, 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 those four in the center in the front row balcony. Those are the, that's the, that's the, that's the brass ring right there. That's the they velvet are. rope seats. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you did a filmed interview with Vice Magazine during the Inherent Vice Press Tour. And the interviewer asked you, you know, the same question I'm sure you're all you're you're getting on this tour, uh, why the '70s and LA again? And you had countered with, well, you know, that's actually a question you should ask Thomas Pinchon in 2009, writing a book that was set in what's well-trod ground for him. And you said mm. the question for Pinchon is, what's still nagging at him that you've got to mm -hmm. look back? That you, you you're Thomas Pinchon, you could have written about anything but he's still going back to look at this time one more time. And so now that we're talking about a PTA original that's gone back to this milieu, the Valley, LA, the seventies, what's nagging at Paul that you have to look back and tell Alana and Gary's story. Okay. Well, now this is the problem with doing a, a podcast with some proper real grade A <laughs> film nerds. Because that is so such a good question you're using my own words against me I we mean, take I'm notes baby we now. take notes yeah. i mean <laughs> i prefer the uh, softball kind of you know uh, um ah oh, it's a great question you know that's that's exactly right what the hell is nagging at me that i would return yet again 
Um, <laughs> and the answer is, I have no idea. You know, it's 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 like, I suppose it becomes a long list of ways to try to talk yourself out of something, right? Um, well, how about you have this terrific story um, of this kid selling waterbeds? Um, okay, well, what's an equivalent? What, what if I wanted to make a film that was a contemporary film, save myself all the trouble of recreating a period? Um, just go take a camera, run down to the streets right now. All right, what's the equivalent of a waterbed? Well, you draw blanks. You don't. There's nothing. There's nothing as good as a waterbed. Okay, well, what, what? How would he sell himself to the world? Well, he'd have a YouTube channel. Check. That's not sexy. I'm not doing that. Um, <laughs> what? 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 You, you know? And you and you 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 kind of you do these somersaults to sort of wonder if you could get yourself out of what is inevitable <laughs> and, and you can't stop what's coming um, at a certain point, you know, to paraphrase Cormac McCarthy, can't stop what's coming. Um, and so I, um, it was against all better judgments, but again, it was again, it was, it was to, to, to all my greatest judgments. It's just that I, you, I have to do this. This is too good a story. And it feels right to do right now. Um, I love these characters. I love the venue for this story. Um, and lean in and don't look back. And that's the, that's how you approach it. Um, of course, it becomes the you know what the 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 unintended kind of byproduct of a lot of this stuff becomes. You know, telling a story without telephones is just ends up just being so much more magical. Um, way people can't find each other obvious things like that mystery mystery that we we, we miss nowadays um is in, instantly inserted into your story um and these things are very attractive um particularly to a modern life where you feel chained like a fucking cannonball to all this modern <laughs> shit that's dragging you down <laughs> oh, well, yeah. you know what that's probably just what thomas Pinchon would have said too so <laughs> good answer good answer um, you know, speaking of uh, Alana and Gary and characters like Doc and Shasta, I'm going to do that really annoying uh, film critic-y thing where I try to make a grand unified filmography theory about your work. And Oh, boy. You can do that thing. <laughs> yeah, and you can just do that director thing of, going, of responding with, I mean, I don't know, I guess. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> but, uh, you know, watching, re-watching your filmography, which any sane person should be doing a lot, uh, so many of your protagonists are like hucksters and showmen and either literal or figurative performers. And the product that they seem to be selling most often is their vision of themselves and their vision of what the world should be. In the movie Sydney, you had Sydney and his vision of like the dignified con and an undignified world. You've got Godcocked Dirk Diggler's and Frank T.J. Mackey's projecting versions of themselves onto the world. You've got dueling philosophies of love and entitlement uh, between the characters of Punch Trunk Love and There Will Be Blood, The Master. You've, you've got two literal visionary salesmen pressing their, their worldview onto the planet around them. But it, it seems like beginning with Inherent Vice, that focus started to shift uh, a bit from the men who were projecting those visions and kind of more started to look at their partners that, that those men maybe don't see so clearly. You know, in Inherent Vice, uh, Doc is running around LA trying to convince everyone else that his ex-old lady has been kidnapped and needs to be rescued. But it turns out, you know, he was supposed to be saving a small family instead. And, and in Phantom Thread, 
You've got Alma arresting more than half the film's POV from the ostensible lead. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then finally, in Licorice Pizza, it, it's like it's rooted in its totality in the mindset of the exasperated Alana. The huckster is no longer the center. It's now we're looking at him from the outside. And I'm curious, when you when something when that kind of evolution happens, do you notice it? Do you stand back and see it when you look at your work? Or is it more like when you look back, you don't know, it just feels right. And that perspective feels right to you now. I think it's more the latter that it's an, that instinctual kind like moving, you know, screenwriters, they're like fucking sharks, you know, they're moving, they're, they're, they're moving around to look for what, what they can devour, what they can eat, what smells good to them using all their spidey senses. And I, I'm the way you frame the question, what you just said, just, I'm just remembering like Alana, my feelings for Alana, not just this character, but Alana, I am playing this part. Like I, I was, I was sensing this energy from her and responding to it, responding to the work that we'd done together. I was, you know, this movie that licorice pizzas, it's literally this outgrowth from the work that I'd done with Haim and the band, because this is some of the most joyous experiences that I've had. We have no money. We have no time. We have no idea what we're doing. And you just go, you get a camera and two days later, you're doing something and you kind of wing it and you come up with something. And there's generally about seven of us. So in writing the film and, and planning it out, I just wanted to keep that energy going, you know, and that energy was there in front of my face with the story that I had. And, the characters alana just ends up having more ammunition you know truthfully um than gary does probably because gary's 16 he's sort of more unpredictable in a, in a way that you can't count on or that isn't that interesting for a while because you know he's got the he's got the attention span of a fly he's sort of moving you know <laughs> it, 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 a scam for him it's just it's like another day you know so that's interesting this is interesting so it's hard to wrap your hands around a character like that. Alana has more at stake. I mean, if time is running out, she's lying about how old she is. She's 29, she's 25. I'm 25, I'm 29. She just doesn't even know how old she is. She's the youngest. She's living at home. Um, she seems to be, just because of her age, the more emotionally mature one, but very rapidly you discover that she is completely out to lunch, emotionally immature, <laughs> volatile, um, <laughs> I suppose that, you know, I, male or female, I guess I probably gravitate towards the volatile ones. You know, I certainly have a type, clearly. (laughs) Like, uh, you know, and she's my type. Like, I like him like that, you know, um, whether whether it's a Tom Cruise type of guy or Alana Kane, I I like them when they're a little scattershot. Um, Certainly more dramatic and certainly more, you know, you know more comedic possibilities with a character like that um so yeah that's just that that's just it's kind of probably like the leaning tower of pisa did they build it that way or did it just start leaning <laughs> like what what happened well that is the best possible version of the director's i don't know i guess answer that I could have possibly received for that. And, so and, artfully and, done. So I got to applaud you there. I really put go, a lot of effort into that, guys. Put some, some mustard some, on that one. That was some, good. That was really some, good. Somehow we got a Leaning Tower of Pisa in a Licorice Pizza interview, <laughs> which I'm just absolutely flabbergasted oh, with. But, oh. but, but, but I... 
I, I just wanted to say, Paul, I, I, one thing I particularly love about Licorice Pizza is I feel like Alana's perspective is the only reliable one. And I think that in some of your films you've been, you know, other than obviously the massive, you know, uh, ensemble tapestry that is something like Magnolia, um, uh, and even in, in many ways Boogie Nights too, but I loved that when we were with Gary Cooper, um, uh, that is Cooper Hoffman. When we're with him, he's just like, like you said, he's just so id, whatever's next, whatever the next hustle is, move on. You know, a new hustle is just like a new pair of pants. And whereas Alana is like looking and sort of truthfully dissecting all these different huxes that are around. And you've just got such a murderer's row of cameos and uh, of these characters uh love benny safty you know the the most quintessentially new york looking guy ever in an la movie i'm a big fan of that um yeah. uh, bradley cooper's john peters another just completely unhinged and just i i imagine you must have just had a complete ball with bradley but also jack holden sean penn sean penn's thinly veiled william holden i mean that just felt like another commentary on i guess what quentin you know has occupied in the pu public consciousness consciousness recently with the whole like rick dalton of it all like an equivalency you know of this 50s legend just wishing he could recapture his youth jumping motorcycles um could you talk about those lovable you know uh tapestry of hucksters that you've got in this movie that alana has to encounter well they're all they were all presented to me like like you know i i i know it's easy to consider um inherent vice and adaptation because it because it was you know there's a book and we all know it and there it is and i i did service to it but you have to you have to really think of this as an as an adaption um of my friend gary's uh, uh, life of uh, gary getzman who is a producer now with tom hanks but when he started his young life here in the san fernando valley he was a child actor okay and he was in yours mine ours with lucille ball okay that's a great story already <laughs> you yes. know they're shooting on the paramount lot where star trek is shooting that's a great story um here's an even better one he has to go to the ed sullivan show uh, television show to, to to promote yours mine and ours and his mom can't go with him he needs a chaperone so he hires kiki page a burlesque dancer that lives in his neighborhood to be his <laughs> chaperone right <laughs> check that's a great story this is again you know you're sort of adapting it so now suddenly you've got okay lucille ball ed sullivan oh my god and you're and you're how old you're 15 and now there's kiki page that's good okay um tim matheson was one of the supporting actors in that who was coming on to kiki page and flirting with kiki page okay tim matheson is now in the story you know taking it a step further in gary's life he he had a girlfriend who ended up auditioning for a William Holden movie called Breezy. And you think, oh, my God, this is like, this is like the, the hits keep coming here, you know, <laughs> of the, you know, um, and then you hear a story from Gary's friends about delivering a waterbed to John Peter's house. You think, well, what happened? And they say, nothing. Nicest guy in the whole world. You think, well, no, that's not good. Now I need to, <laughs> that's not good. I need something there. You know, again, it's the screenwriter of shark thing. Like, mm, okay, I'll steal that, use that. And then I make up my own thing over here. Joel Wax was a very famous city councilman here in the San Fernando Valley for the better part of 30 years, probably like late 60s to the late 90s. Um, funny story there was that Jonathan Demi actually was a was a, a guy in PR and met Gary backstage at the Ed Sullivan show. He was doing PR for UA 
and the UA was handling yours, mine, and ours. So he met Jonathan Demi, convinced Jonathan Demi to come out to LA because he lived in this house all by himself with his younger brother. Jonathan Demi finally did it right before they made Caged Heat. Um, Gary had been working in Joel Wax campaign for mayor. He said, Jonathan, you're a director. Come direct this TV spot. So they went up to the dirt part of Mulholland. They were trying to, to um, oppose this um, a development, kind of a lot like um, an inherent vice, but they were proposing this Beverly Ridge Estates, which they lost if they ended up building it. But Jonathan Demi directed this commercial um, for Joel Wax. Well, by the way, when I asked Joel Wax about it many years later, he said, no, 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 Joel, you know, Jonathan Demi didn't direct that. Gary Getzman did. He said, I said, no, no, <laughs> Jonathan Demi, the guy that made Sounds of the Lambs. He said, no, 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 I'm telling you. I said, I'm telling you. He just didn't even notice the guy because he didn't know who he was. He said, oh, isn't that interesting? Huh, Jonathan Demi directed my, my, my television commercial. Um, so I'm working from this adaptation, you know, of, of this man's life that has all these incredible cameos, um, not the least of which is William Holden um, and creating this kind of thinly veiled version of it. Because I think when you get into a situation like that, you don't want to, you have to move the goalposts around, I think, to suit your suit the needs of your story. And then, want somebody to do an ed sullivan impression check you know you just sort of take that away you lucille ball okay do it but don't really do it so let's call her something else um i'm so insane that i think everybody knows william holden when in fact you know very few people under the age of 30 do um (laughs) so i probably didn't need to change that name but i think it's it's a nice thing that you tell an actor it's jack holden it's not william holden that way they're free to do they don't have to do an impression you don't have to you don't have to pay a certain kind of respect or service to the real William Holden, who I absolutely love and admire. And wouldn't want to, you know, I wouldn't want anyone to think that he was as delusional as our guy. I don't think he was. I think he liked to drink, but I don't think he was quoting his own movies, you know, to young starlet. Um, but so, you know, these are the kind of things that are building the spine of the story, which seemed so delicious to me. Um, I've gone on a tangent now, but you just sort of, you have to, you, you, you measure it up about what, what needs to be fictionalized and what, what can be real. You know, John Peters, that whole episode is, I think it's important that that stayed as John Peters. And the reason why is because you have to imagine that a young Jewish girl in the Valley, like Alana, was aware of Barbara Streisand. I mean, how could she not be? This is like the height of Barbara Streisand's popularity and fame. So that is a, an element to the story that needs to be there. You know, the, this threat of Barbara Streisand, like, where, where is she? Is she coming home? Like, this, how do you pronounce her name? All this kind of stuff. Like, so, you, you know, you have that. And then John Peters ends up sort of being a catch-all. It's funny, I was talking to a journalist from uh, Denmark. And I was like, do you know who John Peters is? He was like, of course. It was like, what the fuck? Everybody knows John Peters. <laughs> um, well, but oh yeah, that's that's kind of how you navigate that stuff. I think it's funny. Look at this film as an adaption of a of an unpublished life story. That's a great way of looking at it. That's great. And don't please don't apologize for going on tangents. This is a podcast about inherent vice. Do you understand how many tangents have happened on this on this fucking thing? My God, it's just tangents upon tangents upon tangents in this bad boy. But uh, you know, Paul, I know I know we have to let you go soon. So I'm I'm going to close out with with one last question for you. And again, thank you for your time. Unfortunately, we do not have time for one last question. We can do we can do one we can do one more. Go ahead, last one. Thank you, Paul. 
So my last question is this. Um, you you went on Mark Barron's show once, and he was kind of politely teasing you and grousing about how Punch Drunk Love was a bit inscrutable to him. You know, what's that all about, man? What's that supposed to mean? And you made this kind of joyous exclamation <laughs> where you just shouted out, it's about love, baby. <laughs> and, and, and maybe this is, again, one of those annoying critic speak questions, but isn't that what all of your films are about, really? The ways in which we fall in and out of love with the people who are both good and bad for us and what and maybe is that what returns you to the worlds that you return to so often that the way these characters the docs and the shastas the reynolds and the almas the garys and alanas keep finding their ways back together is it just is it all about love baby see i knew i was going to regret giving you one more question i knew it i knew <laughs> yeah it. i did i did it again i tried to put some heat on that one i mean i you know I don't, I mean, sure, fuck it. I don't know, but I do know that, like, what I'm trying to think of a story that I like that doesn't have that at its center or that ultimately doesn't have that at its center. Like, you know, name a story, name a story. They, that, that's what they all are. I don't think it's exclusive to me, or at least if it is, it's certainly the ones that I like the most, for sure. Yeah. Um, it's something, oh, fuck it. I don't know that we can all hold in our hands at least. And we all get, um, yeah, I don't know. It's probably why. Yeah. It's probably why you keep making these films. Cause you're just scratching. You're scratching at that door. That, that yeah. You know, there was a, there was a, there was a, there was a, a horrifying New York, uh, New York, I don't know, New York times, maybe New Yorker article about somebody who scratched their head it was like this, this disease of scratching your head and they scratch all the way through their skull and get to the oh brain. My God. you think like i'm close i mean i've got to be close <laughs> i've got to be halfway through the skull <laughs> well i think that this is your most unabashed love movie your most joyous love story your most it's about love baby love film and i i think you've i think you've reached the brain with this one and i and, Yay! And, with and i and i really really appreciate your time today and thank you so much for the movie seriously thank you Thanks, so much guys. that was this great. Has been awesome all right Have talk to you one. soon thanks thanks paul all right bye bye Woo. so that was fun right i think he had fun what'd you say i mean i didn't I didn't have any expectations going in that it could be nearly as good as that was for me. And I don't know about anyone listening, but I got to watch like Travis and I together, much like we're doing now, virtually talking to each other, going through this. And it was a total moment of surreality because in the times that I've spoken on shows on one hit minute productions with some of our immense guests particularly Michael Mann who everyone listening would know how much he means to me I didn't get to enjoy that with an audience and while you guys will hear me ask a couple of questions or I would have heard me ask a couple of questions to Paul Thomas Anderson um, I can't tell you how much joy that listening to this and hearing his reactions to Travis's questions, brilliant questions. And looking at Travis's face, hearing the reactions to the questions was, it was just, um, 
it was just a sublime moment, like truly an incredible highlight in everything that I've ever done in podcasting and uh, totally both warms me uh, and and then motivates me to find more projects for you and I to do this together again. <sighs> Like, just don't leave it back together. <laughs> I told you, I told you that, I told you that. But, um, no. you know, that it, um, it was a lot of fun. And I mean, obviously, <laughs> I mean, as, I mean, it sounds silly on one hand to, uh, you know, I think it's easy to kind of, you know, just be like, oh, you know, just a couple dudes with a podcast, a couple movie, a couple beard bros, bearded movie bros with their, with their, with their podcast. But, you know, this is, this was a journey that I think meant a lot to us both. It's a film. Inherent Vice and all of Paul's films, uh, just with Inherent Vice happening to be my favorite. His films mean so much to me, to you, to so many others. And, you know, to be able to, you know, frankly, shoot the shit with him. Uh, Increment Vice style, not really. I mean, unfortunately, you know, we didn't get to do the big, the, the big two and a half hour typical <laughs> Increment Vice episode link. The man does have a life and 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 like 50 kids give the guy a break okay he's got a family to take care of but to be able just to have that kind of shaggy hey let's just shoot the shit you know you can talk a little long i'll talk, I'll talk a little long you know with his poor publicist interrupting us trying to get us <laughs> to wrap it up and paul telling her you know no, 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 no. you know just to be able to do that with the guy uh, who did bring to the screen this film that we did dedicate a year of our lives to just thinking about and living in and exploring and and and, and falling in love with this film over and over one week one scene at a time to be able to talk to him i mean you know what uh because i have read i think just about all of his goddamn interviews <laughs> I'll, I'll quote him uh when i say it's just magic and, and what's better than magic man it's better than magic <laughs> Uh, not much, not much. Well, maybe he might say love because that's what it's all about. Yes. But uh, it was magic. And, you know, when um, when we as we walk away here from this and as we ended that interview with him, I remember closing out this show the first time around. Mm -hmm. I say first time around because this is the last time around. Blake. This is the last time. around. Mm -hmm. But uh, I remember when we recorded the last episode. And I was so sick and goddamn tired of this show. <laughs> and as silly, you know what, you know, that sounds silly. Maybe it sounds super dramatic, but watching a movie once a week for a year, sitting and having to think about that movie, a scene at a time to engage with it, to wrestle with it, to engage and, 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 and to, to converse with a guest about it to do to read and to do research and uh to explore all these possible connections you know it gets a little tiring when you have to do that week after week and uh i say get or when you when i say you have to do that like someone held a gun to my head but um well i guess you did blake but <laughs> you know once we got to those final run of episodes i was so exhausted and i was so tired of thinking about this movie and i was so tired of watching this movie that I was really excited. I was really excited that it was going to be over and I was going to have my life back and I was going to have free time again. And then we got to that final day and I started feeling funny. Like I started just, I started just feeling funny, a little sad, 
little melancholy. Mm-hmm. It was in a very inherent vice kind of mood. And when we wrapped up the recording of that final episode, I was really bummed out. I was really sad. And that whole weekend after, I was just, I was kind of miserable. And um, you know what it felt like? It felt like in keeping with its subject matter, it felt like splitting up with someone you know you got to split up with. But then right when it comes time to do it, you start thinking about all those times walking on the beach and her smiling at you and you smiling back and just wishing it didn't have to be that way. And I remember feeling that. And and that, that sucked. It really it made me very sad. And it felt very, 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 it just didn't feel done. It didn't feel done. And again, in keeping with this movie. When we wrapped that interview with Paul, that felt right. That felt done. Yeah. Like it felt like this, this felt like, uh, it felt like, as, as again, as silly as it might say for a podcast, but it is a podcast that we, dedicated a lot of time and energy and heart to uh it felt like closure it felt like felt like our time with this movie felt like my especially me it felt like my time with this movie was over and uh you know just like every relationship maybe every good story needs an epilogue and this was ours and as i say that i do think this will likely be my last drive through the fog <laughs> along those surface streets, doglegging the coast of the California Republic as I wait for whatever will happen, for a forgotten joint to materialize in my pocket, for the CHP to come by and choose not to hassle me, for a restless blonde and a stingray to stop and offer me a ride, for the fog to burn off, and for something else this time, somehow to be there instead this is my last time waiting for that because as far as inherent vice is concerned as far as an increment vice is concerned i think that this is as good as it gets and this and our our opportunity to speak to paul is what materialized in that place where the fog burned off so i think it's time I think it's time to point this car at something else and I'll see what I can see. And uh, like Paul said, I, uh, I've scratched the itch. It's gone. <laughs> this don't mean we're back together. <laughs> of course not. Old PTA wasn't wrong in the June 2008 issue of The New Yorker. There is a medical article titled, The Itch, and it tells the real-life story of a woman named M, who developed an anomalous itch on the side of her skull. And dang, if she scratched that thing all the way to her pulsing brain. And Dante, in the Inferno, he wrote that some folks were punished with the burning rage of fierce itching that nothing could relieve. And having that itch dead center in your head or your heart or your soul, well, there ain't nothing worse. But then, remember how Montaigne once wrote, scratching is one of the sweetest gratifications of nature, and as ready at hand as any. Well, when you're like PTA, you just keep on scratching, all the way down into the 70s, and the valley 
and all the hucksters that come spilling out. And if you're like us, you chase that itch all the way down with him. Because with the bummer of the itch, there always comes the high of the scratch. And there just isn't anything that feels quite as good. Except for maybe love. Because that's what it's really all about, isn't it? Sure seems that way. We get the feeling Paul thinks so. And maybe you do too. Maybe that's why you're here. Maybe that's why Doc and Shasta and Sancho and Dinas and Sordalige and Jade and Coy and Hope and Little Amethyst and even Old Bigfoot just mean so goddamn much to us. They, and Inherent Vice, remind us what it's all about. Love, baby. We saw what we saw, and that's what we found every single time on Increment Vice.